Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast. The conference took place in University College Dublin on the 2nd and 3rd of September 2011 and saw over 50 speakers from Ireland and beyond come together to share their ideas in an interdisciplinary forum. In association with HistoryHub.ie, the majority of the papers are available for podcasting via the HistoryHub.ie website and on iTunes. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr Gerald Power, who lectures in history at the Metropolitan University, Prague. His monograph... A European Frontier Elite, The Nobility of the English Pale in Tudor Ireland, 1496 to 1566, is forthcoming. His paper is entitled Under Mighty Subjects, The Lesser Nobility of the English Pale, 1534 to 1566. The nobility of Tudor Ireland uh, can be divided uh, into two groups, um, the magnates and the lesser nobility. Uh, Many of the former are, are very well known to us. And these are the earls uh, whose connections, land holdings and, and often highly important careers have been studied uh, at length uh, by numerous scholars, including some uh, here in this room. However, this still leaves a large proportion of peers who were of the second rank. And these lesser nobles, um, with their restricted political, military and economic resources, occupy a, a murkier place in the historiography. Now, this paper, uh, kind of a distillation of the forthcoming book, attempts to cast some light on a regional grouping of lesser nobles in 16th century Ireland, the, no- the nobility of the English Pale. Its aim is to refocus our attention um, from the magnates towards the smaller fry. Uh, for these men need to be considered if we wish to uh, comprehend fully the peerage of Ireland um, as a whole. Um, Also, another aim of the project is to uh, explore state-noble relations during uh, um, a period of of revolutionary change uh, in the Pale uh, and, of course, Ireland uh, in general, as the Tudor monarchy groped uh, towards uh, exerting fuller control over its second land across the sea. There were significant gulfs between the economic and military resources of the magnates and the likes of the nobility uh, of the English Pale. Uh, the source material for baronial estates uh, and incomes is, is limited, but the better uh, documented examples, uh, like those for the St. Lawrence's Barons of Hoth and the Nugent's Barons of Delvin, give uh, indications of, of incomes per annum uh, of between around uh, 100 and £250. Pounds. Um, comparatively low incomes, together with the costs associated with being a peer, things like military expenditure, maintenance of households uh, in Dublin, uh, attendance on the, the deputy and council, uh, may have been a reason for, for several early Tudor peers um, taking uh, up positions in the central administration, something quite unusual for nobles in general, uh, and may explain why in the 1530s John Barnwall, Lord Trimbleston, uh, acted as steward of the Pale Estates of the great English-based noble Thomas Earl of Wiltshire. Now, a magnate such as the Earl of Kildare, with an income of around £1,500, clearly stood head and shoulders above the other peers from the Pale region. Uh, Moreover, the economic gap between Pale peer and Pale gentleman was not great. Uh, Sometimes, as in the case of Lord Hoth and his North Dublin neighbour, Talbot of Malahide, uh, local gentlemen uh, actually enjoyed higher higher incomes from their rents uh, than peers did. Uh, There were other ways in which peers' uh, land-holding profiles um, set them at a disadvantage, Uh, Typically, peers would hold uh, scattered uh, property across the Pale uh, and sometimes beyond. 
Now, the the non-contiguous nature uh, of the peers' lands uh, resulted in a a weakened presence uh, in a particular locality or or county. There were exceptions here. Much of the baronies of Delvin and Four uh, were referred to as Nugent's country. They had a very uh, heavy presence there. Um, But the general pattern was one of of scattered land holdings and reduced networks of supporters uh, in comparison to the more powerful aristocrats, whether English or or Gaelic, uh, with their compact and centralised power bases. Militarily, the lesser lords of the Pale were were emphatically uh, second rank. Uh, If we use the ability to operate uh, as an effective independent military force, uh, as an acid test of military power, uh, then the Pale lords come up short uh, in the period surveyed here. Nobles from the sheltered intersection of the Pale, the Mahari, uh, like Lords Hoth and Gormanston, uh, did not boast significant military resources, and this is hardly surprising given their locations uh, and the fact that they existed side by side with a, a vigorous and numerous uh, gentry. Towards the marches, we find evidence to suggest that um, the likes of the Eustaces of Baltinglass, the Flemings of Slane, the Plunkets of Dunsany, uh, Killeen and Louth, were each possessed of a warlike following and could hold their own in the tit-for-tat, low-intensity violence that was pervasive on the Anglo-Gaelic frontier. But no lesser peer could operate as a warlord on the scale of a magnate. And this had been made only too clear when Richard, a third Lord Delvin, attempted to discharge his duties as Vice-Deputy of Ireland in 1528. Now, famously, the Baron was quickly cut down to size when he was kidnapped by the O'Connors of Offaly. Uh, biting off more than he could chew. Uh, Richard's grandson, uh, namesake and successor, um, was an enthusiastic captain and a capable soldier, Uh, but his greatest feats, such as uh, the two-week hosting uh, he launched into the McCoughlin Lordship in the mid-1550s, were were undertaken only after the Baron had been absorbed into the 11th Earl of Kildare's circle of supporters. Uh, So the lesser nobles of the Pale lagged some way behind the magnates of Ireland. And at the same time, there was was no major gulf between the lords of the Pale and the region's numerous gentry in terms of power and influence, while the peers, by virtue of their titles, stood at the pinnacle of local society. The gentry could challenge them. The two noble Plunkett families of Meath uh, were seldom capable of controlling other branches of their lineage, an informant of Thomas Cromwell's, uh, described the dynasty as, uh, as a full of hatred between themselves, uh, weakened by internecine uh, strife. In the 1560s, there was friction within the Fleming lineage, uh, with no evidence to suggest that Baron Slane came out on top. Gent- the gentry had uh, an advantage in their jostling with the peers because it seems they were more willing to take up their pens and direct complaints to Crown representatives about the apparent uh, misconduct of the nobles. The famous Dylan Nugent dispute of the 1570s and 80s had uh, an earlier genesis. In 1548, Lord Delvin and his Dylan neighbours from Westmeath clashed over their rival Gaelic allies within the O'Malachlan clan. Um, Delvin may have had the edge militarily here, but the Dillons were represented by the lawyer Robert Dillon, who corresponded with the Lord Deputy, Bellingham, and ultimately um, Dillon persuaded Bellingham to back his, his client. So round one went to the Dillons here. Uh, the lesser nobles at the Pale were also 
under mighty subjects in terms of their political power and resources. An earl in Ireland or any major Gaelic lord were individuals with the potential to make or break the effectiveness of crown authority in their areas of influence. Now, no Tudor official could ignore the problems thrown up by these men. And during a time when communication between royal government and many of the regional powerhouses was sporadic at best, it is no surprise that schedules of state papers or the diary of Edward VI uh, record when royal letters or, or writs of summons uh, were sent to magnates. The lesser nobles of the Pale, on the other hand, uh, were essentially taken for granted uh, by the state. They were familiar figures. By tradition, the most frequent attenders at Parliament and supporters of the governor, and without the independent military power to cause the government concern. Another function of the peers' proximity to the centre of government of Tudor Ireland was that their activities and their attitudes were relatively easy for the government to monitor, to supervise. They had very little of the freedom of action enjoyed by the regional magnates. In addition to these curbs on aristocratic power, the Lord's ability to shape their political world was traditionally stymied by lack of connections at the royal court. Although, as we will see, this was a situation that had begun to change slowly by the 1560s. The lesser peers had, had of course, little to offer a courtier or minister in London. Still less did they enjoy a direct line to the sovereign, uh, as Black Tom, Earl of Ormond, did. Uh, Moreover, with some notable exceptions, it seems that few lords had opportunity to go up to London. If the chief governor suspected that a pale peer sought to use a court visit to voice criticism about him, he could simply intervene to stop the visit. In 1536, Leonard Gray uh, denied Lord Delvin passport to travel to England. Um, Later, in 1552, the fourth Lord Delvin's proposed visit to court was thwarted when Lord Deputy Croft prevailed upon the king to withdraw his invitation. But regardless of these handicaps, it it must also be stressed that for much of the Tudor period, the lesser pale nobility exhibited an aversion to engagement in controversy and high politics. Now, while the voluble and politically active pale gentry produced a range of commentators, as you've been hearing about, from uh, the obscure David Sutton of County Kildare to someone like Lord Chancellor Cusack, all of whom added their voices to the clamour of opinion on how best to reform Ireland. The pale nobles were largely tacit. A good illustration of of this trend is the case of John Barnwell, Lord Trimbleston. Um, In the aftermath of the Kildare Revolt, Trimbleston was uh, perhaps one of the most controversial of Irish peers because of his alleged Geraldine sympathies and because of his tenure of the Lord Chancellorship between 1534 and 1538. Lord Trimbleston was subject to a great deal of criticism uh, from the the abrasive Governor Leonard Gray and from a a group of officials uh, on the make, led by John Allen. Trimbleston's critics accused him of being a Geraldine and of being negligent and lax in the execution of his office. Um, And despite all this, the Baron apparently never attempted to defend himself from these charges, Not a single letter survives from Trimbleston, uh, and perhaps unsurprisingly, he was the last pale peer to hold office in the central administration. Trimbleston's case highlights the the broader point that that as a group, the lesser nobles were 
consistently uh, reluctant to defend themselves from charges levelled against them by officials and their neighbours from the gentry, or to register, the, to register their opinions during a time when the Lordship of Ireland was being reconstructed. How then did this relatively weak and diffident section of the Irish peerage cope with the attempts to expand English rule throughout Ireland which followed the suppression of the Kildare Rebellion? Well, the first reaction was to accommodate themselves to the new realities, the English-born chief governor, the garrison, the wars, the Reformation, and to cooperate with the government in its enterprises. Loyalty and service to the state were, after all, the, the, the default positions of this regional grouping. Rendering counsel to the chief governor was a routine aspect of a pale noble's career. This, uh, as well as taking place places on a variety of government commissions, from enforcing the Reformation to come into agreements uh, with Gaelic clansmen, presumably conferred various benefits on the nobility, demonstrating the unique links between peer and crown and reinforcing the Lord's seniority at shire level. Perhaps the most important public uh, and uh, significant area of cooperation uh, between government and nobility uh, was in the military sphere. Now, despite our earlier observations on the restricted military capabilities uh, of the Pale Peers, soldiering was still central to their world. Jenico Preston, third Viscount Gormanston, was by all accounts an indifferent soldier. Uh, in a long career from 1532, he was only given a couple of commanding roles in the field. But he was remembered after his death, first and foremost, as a soldier. His funeral opened with a black-clad mourner bearing the, the Viscount's standard, uh, which he was wont to bear in battle against his enemies. Another enthusiastic soldier was Lord Hoth, a deputy St. Ledger handed Hoth, um, command of a force of men to dislodge the Macdonalds from Lacale. Hoth was later identified as having run up defalcations to the Crown to the tune of over £2,000 while serving as an army captain in the mid-1550s. Uh, perhaps the peer who seems to have profited most from the militaristic bent uh, of mid-Tudor government was Richard, Lord Delvin. Uh, Delvin was a protégé of William Brabazon, the treasurer who sponsored penetrations into the Midland Gaelic Lordship. Delvin worked alongside Brabazon during the latter's missions um, uh, uh, in the Midlands in the later 1540s. And he took the opportunity to intervene uh, in Gaelic chiefly disputes across the River Shannon. He even succeeded in expanding uh, Delvin territory at the expense of the O'Farrells of Annerley. Now, Delvin's territorial aggrandizement um, should be seen perhaps in the context of mid-Tudor colonization. Uh, Delvin informed the deputy uh, that uh, he intended to fortify his new acquisitions in Loch Ree, uh, which were described by the council as uh, a, a waste, a wild country among the wild Irish, where little obedience doth continue. Overall, I think there's ample evidence to suggest that the lesser nobles and post-Kildare government in Ireland could cooperate uh, in pursuit of their respective goals. Uh, the Lord's alternate influence, impulse uh, was to resist the policies and strategies adopted by the government. Now, it is at face value paradoxical uh, that this most biddable this most obedient of noble groupings in Ireland should come to oppose royal government. 
but it was really a function of their relative powerlessness. Post-Kildare government in Ireland tended to take for granted the pliancy of the pale nobles. So as officials became enmeshed in the affairs of the major provincial lords, the requirements and aspirations of the pale nobility were very much uh, a secondary concern at times, and especially during the governorship of Lord Leonard Grey, uh, royal officers in Ireland took to scapegoating uh, the lesser nobles for the government's failings. Grey and his associates took their cues from earlier condemnations of aristocratic misbehaviour, uh, things like levying coin and livery uh, and illicit contacts with the Irishry. But they went much further in their 1537 letter to Cromwell, which recommended depriving the nobles of their local authority and entrusting it instead to reliable kinsmen of the lords, um, a novel remedy for undependable aristocrats. Uh, the peers learned how to resist during Gray's administration. They took advantage of the presence in Ireland of a team of royal commissioners headed by Anthony St. Ledger in 1537, bringing depositions of their mishandling by Gray to the commissioners' attentions. And the following year, Viscount Gormanston's hostile account of Deputy Gray's hosting into Munster and Connacht was forwarded to St. Ledger. And finally, when St. Ledger was once more sent um, to Ireland to prepare evidence for Gray's treason trial, many of the Pale Lords contributed to the mammoth book of evidence, which was eventually used in Gray's trial. And of course, St. Ledger, the former commissioner, the former spectator of Irish affairs, duly became St. Ledger, the chief governor, uh, ushering in a, a noble renaissance in the early 1540s by way of surrender and regrant. I want to quickly fast forward 25 years and talk about how history repeated itself, um, except that on the second occasion, the stakes were rather higher. Again, a forceful aristocratic chief governor, this time Thomas, Earl of Sussex, presided over an administration um, with an ambitious programme, a programme in which the lesser peers of the Pale were to play their customary, doughty, supporting role. Uh, but where Grey had put noble noses out of joint with his high-handedness, Grey's, uh, sorry, Sussex's uh, heavy exploitation of the cess tax uh, in order to sustain the garrison, which was central to his mission to neutralise Shane O'Neill um, and so pacify Gaelic Ireland, plunged the English pale into economic misery. What made all this worse was the fact that Sussex prevailed upon the nobles to give their consent at the council table to the numerous cess proclamations and on occasions when peers registered objections, pressurised them into consenting by threatening to expose them to the Queen as obstacles to her service. He also withheld from the peers uh, information on the size of the army uh, on the grounds that it was no part of their charge. Now, the nobles found themselves on the horns of a dilemma here um, to either accept the despotic tendencies of Sussex's regime uh, or to side with the lieutenant's many critics from the pale community. Uh, in keeping with their conservative instincts, the lords of the pale uh, abstained from participation in the early anti-cess movement. So while men like Archbishop Dowdall, um, John Parker, Barnaby Scurlock were engaging in wars of words with Sussex and his associates from as early as 1557. 
the Lords remained aloof until July of 1561, when a group of four nobles, uh, Viscounts Boltinglass and Gormanston, and Baron Slane and Dunsany, wrote to Elizabeth, appealing for a commissioner to inquire into Sussex's use of the cess. Now, by this time, the anti-cess campaign had become much more respectable. Uh, Meathman William Birmingham was labouring at court on behalf of the so-called country cause, where the Earl of Leicester uh, and ad- adherents like Nicholas Arnold proved receptive. Uh, in addition, the powerful Earl of Kildare had also emerged as a public critic of the governor, and his scheme for the rehabilitation of Shane O'Neill at court uh, had been championed uh, at court by Leicester, eventually by Elizabeth. Now, we'll never know the precise impact of the Lord's Petition of 1561, but pretty soon uh, what they asked for uh, was was realised when, in August 1562, Nicholas Arnold arrived in Ireland with a commission to investigate the administration of the army. Though Sussex remained in charge, the minor nobility, most notably the experienced and the respected Viscount Baltinglass, assisted very closely Arnold's inquiry. Meanwhile, the Earl of Kildare continued to construct a reputation for himself as a patron of the lesser peers. He was already closely connected uh, by marriage ties to several of these peers, including Gormanston and Slane, and he made very public shows of support for the Lords. So soon after his return to Ireland in 1555, he fostered the fourth Lord Delvin's kinsman, um, Robert Nugent. And when Robert was slain by one of the McCocklands, Kildare imposed a massive fine on the clan. Later, in 1565, Kildare personally apprehended the murderer of the fifth Lord Delvin's uncle, uh, by which time the Baron had married one of the Earl's daughters. more explosive example of Kildare's patronage of the lesser nobles took place um, uh, at Ardbracken uh, in November 1561 when Kildare insisted in the teeth of Sussex's protests that a servant of Viscount Baltinglass be released from custody uh, despite the fact that this man had killed the son of a Dublin merchant. It seems very likely that Kildare's paternalistic attitude uh, emboldened the minor peers to turn their latent dislike of Sussex and his policies into actual public dissent. The most dramatic example of this being Lord Slane's defiance before the Lieutenant and Council um, in 1563, and we can talk about that maybe in questions uh, later. The peers' defiance contributed to Sussex's throwing in the towel. By 1563, he was begging to be relieved of his duties, and from 1564, Nicholas Arnold, emulating St. Ledger, began what was to be a two-year stint as chief governor. Now, by 1566 and the beginnings of the Sydney era, and the lesser peers of the English Pale had developed a pattern of behaviour, um, blending service to the state with subversion against those who they viewed as hostile to their interests, uh, even if those men held a royal commission. It was a pragmatic development. Um, The Lord's freedom of action was still restricted by their locations uh, and resources. Uh, Shunning the Lord Deputy and retiring to an obscure border castle, as the Earl of Kildare was wont to do, uh, was not a viable option for these men. They still lacked weight at court. Uh, Moreover, if the peers wished to retain their reputation as the Queen's faithful subjects, as they styled themselves, 
They needed to continue attending grand councils, contributing to hostings, fulfilling the various commissions handed out to them by the government. At the same time, they laboured to direct royal government in ways that were more favourable towards them, sometimes working as a noble group or in larger combinations uh, with, with other palesmen. Uh, in 1565, another noble petition was signed by Baltinglass, Gormanston, and other pale peers. Again, it was urging Elizabeth to continue Nicholas Arnold in office. So we might say that the nobility of the English pale had become politicised, um, and despite being second-rank aristocrats, were poised to play an active role in the high politics of later Elizabethan Ireland. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this HistoryHope.ie podcast. You can find many more podcasts by visiting the HistoryHope.ie website.